Uh, our speaker tonight is known to most everybody in here, John Mazel. He's been a friend of mine for uh, a very long time. I've been on uh, mission trips with him. He has uh, the ministry East-West Ministries, which is an international uh, ministry. Uh, it, uh, he's, got, uh, he's got a lot of stars in his crown in heaven for the, for the work they have uh, done in that, uh, in that ministry. Uh, John uh, played football at OSU and then had a pro career with the, what was then the Houston Oilers um, and then uh, was a successful businessman in Dallas for a short time before the Lord called him and uh, called John not just in the ministry. Uh, he has a special ministry for John. What he does is specializes in countries uh, where less than 1% of the people are believers in Jesus Christ. So where John goes uh, is parts of the world, not only do they not believe in Jesus Christ, they've never heard of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've been on trips with him where I've, I've sat in front of people that never didn't know God, didn't even know the name of God. Um, and so you, at that point, you, you know, you toss the spiritual laws and you start at Genesis 1-1 uh, with people. And John has been uh, very faithful in that, uh, in that ministry and has, and has made a, had a powerful impact. God has used him greatly. But the, <coughs> the, I think the best thing I can say for John, which uh, those of you that know him know that, and all, all the time I've, I've uh, known him, he, he stays focused on his one mission, and that is... Uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every, every part of his being is about that. Uh, and it's, it's something that I've, I've admired about him for years. So, John, the floor is yours. I, uh, I really want to uh, say... Uh, Thank you, Randy, to you in behalf of all of the guys here for, you know, taking this and the leadership you've given us this year. It's gone well, but, you know, there's an incredible amount of work that goes into this, and uh, you've carried that flag well, and uh, thanks for your faithfulness, brother. Also, I want to thank uh, the speakers that we've had uh, with Tex and Walter and uh, Kelly. Uh, I think the unique thing with these guys speaking is that they walk their talk in the marketplace where you guys live on a regular basis. And I think one passion that they want to communicate is that God is looking for men, I think, especially in this country and around the world that really want to go public with their identity with Jesus Christ, uh, no matter what the cost and uh, what it might involve. And you've heard people uh, speak that have what I call moral authority. They're not teaching you a text or talking about a subject in which uh, they've read out of a book. Uh, these are men that uh, have lived it out, uh, just like you have to live it out face the same set of uh, rejections, same set of uh, loss of uh, probably revenues, uh, but uh, thank you guys for what you represent. I usually have a couple of premises 
uh, when I talk. That I think uh, would be good to kind of lay out front here. And, and the first premise is uh, none of us have it all together. Uh, we're all in process. And uh, it's a daily fight to make the supremacy of Jesus Christ preeminent in your life and my life. Uh, the song we sang, My Jesus, My Jesus, that's, that's the message. If we ever get a glimpse of that. You can't see Jesus and be normal. Uh, let's close in prayer. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, the biggest fight that I have, and we're all in this room, we're all in different places. And the biggest fight I have on a daily basis is with my own heart. My heart is prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, how I yearn to live independently from the supremacy of Christ uh, in my life. And so that's a daily fight. And if you choose to put all your chips uh, on the table, you're going to be engaged in this fight on a daily basis. And none of us ever arrive. That's why we desperately need one another to come together and share our brokenness. The second premise is, is that uh, sometimes I think uh, when God wants to communicate truth and, and uh, shake us up a little bit or shock our hearts, uh, he wants to shock us anew with redeeming love. And he wants to, to make uh, our hearts desperate for him. That's really what he's about, making us desperate, no matter where you are, the top of the bell curve or the bottom of the bell curve. And I think sometimes that uh, we hear messages or, or, or people uh, genuinely communicate uh, the scriptures uh, the way that uh, God would have them to communicate. <clears throat> and I think some people uh, receive a message that, well, maybe God's mad at me. Uh, you know, I haven't been living the way that I should. Uh, I want you to understand, uh, if you have said yes to Christ, uh, your father is not angry. No matter what your sin might be, what matter your lukewarmness might be, what uh, matter your divided heart might be, uh, God is continually coming and shouting because he wants to shock us that we make who he is and what he wishes to do supreme in our life. But God is not mad at his children. Jesus Christ took all of the anger for every sin that's represented in this room. And you have a father that uh, really desires that we know what it is to walk in the intimacy and allow him to leverage us the way he wishes to leverage us. Uh, I think there are three plans in life. There's my plan, there's my culture's plan, and then there's God's plan for my life. Uh, two of those plans, my plan and my culture's plans for my life, are very appealing. <laughs> uh, they come at me 24-7 with messages uh, that are contrary to God's plan for the most part. And even though uh, their design uh, with all of the attractiveness of video I can see them, I can touch them on a daily basis. 
And God's plan is a, is a message of faith that I can't see, that I, that I can't touch. I think it's safe to say that, that somewhere along the line, you and I have got to make a decision on the basis of <clears throat> which one of those plans are we going to say yes to. And where we get in trouble as Christians is where we try to mix them. We want God's plan, we want my plan, we want my culture's plans. And God says, uh, yeah, you may trust my son, and your sins are forgiven, and yes, eternity is secure for you, but you will never, never experience how I wish to leverage you and what I wish to do in and through you until you give me your heart completely. So what I want to talk about tonight a little bit is <clears throat> what does it mean uh, for Jesus to be our chief treasure. And I want to look at a passage that uh, we're all familiar with. Uh, it's a passage where Jesus talks about a treasure. And once you find this treasure, uh, this treasure is so valuable to you that you'll be willing to sacrifice any and everything that you might possess this one treasure. And that's found in Matthew 13, verses 44 and 46, and, and, and let me just uh, uh, read this. Uh, this has to do with the kingdom passage where Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this and like that, and the wheat and the tares. And then he comes and he makes this statement, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine pearl. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything that he had, and he brought it. Uh, what Jesus is saying here, he's talking about himself. And we're going to see this in the life as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and how Paul, once he discovered that Jesus was the chief treasure and was to rule and have the supremacy of his heart no matter where he was planted or what he did or what his calling might be uh, and what it cost him, uh, Jesus is telling us that here's a guy and he's kind of walking through the field enjoying life. He's got his assets that are all out there, and all of a sudden, he's walking across this field, and he kind of stumps his toe and turns around and looks, and all of a sudden, there might be a little shiny object that's sticking up, and he turns around, and he gets a shovel, and he starts digging, and, uh, and the more he digs, you know, his eyes get bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden, he finds his chest, and he opens this chest, and inside this chest is everything that a person could ever long for or dream to have. It is of such high value to him. It is the supreme value of why he exists. And he understands what has just happened. And he's looking around, and, he, and you know, and the picture is he makes sure that no one's seen him. And he bears this treasure again. And he knows that this field is not his own. And he's got to buy this field if he's going to keep this treasure. And so what he does, this treasure is so valuable, he goes out and he is willing to liquidate everything, to put everything that he has, is that he's all in, so that he might buy this field 
that he might possess this one treasure. And then he does another story where you're kind of out there and you're, you know, you're looking, uh, you know, all of these pearls and you're, well, would this satisfy or is this the one that gives me the, my meaning and my purpose? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is painting the story. You find the one pearl. If you had the one pearl, you would have everything that you were made to possess and you're willing to liquidate everything that you can that you might put all of your chips and everything in there so that you might possess this thing. Well, Jesus is talking about himself here. Now, uh, somewhere along the line, I've got to see that in this passage here, there are a couple of things. First of all, he's got a passion. Uh, I think God made you and I to live with passion. I think it is the fire that causes us to take everything that we are and to be engaged. Uh, R.C. Sproul said one time, he said, what the church needs is passion. The world has intimidated us into becoming cowards as Christians. I think that's a true statement. And the only way that you and I will begin to get the passion that we talked about, and George was saying he wanted fire on his back, and we were talking about our age this morning and having fire for the Lord in our bellies on the backside of the bell curve, which we are all in, is when I have a clear understanding of the supremacy of what Jesus wishes to do when I tell him he can have my heart, And he has permission to do whatever he wishes to do with me, whether it wishes to take me up or whether he wishes to take me down. The second thing I I think that you see, there's a cost involved here. i got to go sell everything else. Uh, I think maybe five or six years ago, uh, I spoke upon uh, a divided heart. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, David in the psalm said, Oh, Lord, keep me from a divided heart. A divided heart is a heart that says, I'm engaged in my plan, I'm engaged in my culture's plan, and I'm engaged, I hope, in God's plan. I I want the best of my plan, I want the best of my culture's plan, and I want the best that God might give me in regards to this. And it's clear here that it's making a statement that there's a cost that's involved. And he goes down, and when he has found the pearl that he looks for, that's a value. Somewhere along the line, you and I have to make a value decision as it relates to Jesus. I'm not going to give up this world and whatever might be a temporary fix that would cause me to live with my cup half full unless I understand making Jesus the preeminent ruler of my heart is of the supreme value. And the principle of value is that I will not give up that which I value unless I'm giving it up to that which I value more. And so what this is saying and what Jesus is is trying to communicate here, I think, is that once you have understand the cost, once you make a decision related to the value of what your faith choice is going to be, you're going to begin to live with passion. Now, I want to read a passage of Scripture where the things that steal our heart 
and the things that we all fight against. And here I am, Gene is probably the oldest, and I'm kind of up there in that, in, in that category. And I'm telling you, my heart is prone to wonder. And yesterday's victories in my walk, in my intimacy, in my relationship with Christ have absolute nothing to do with an engagement by faith to allow Christ to do that which he wishes to do in and through us. Yesterday's victories don't have anything to do with the fight to maintain Jesus and his preeminence in my life. The Apostle Paul is the only one in Scripture that I know of that could pen a statement, follow me as I follow Christ. And he did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, so the Holy Spirit is saying something to this man. He, he, he's not saying go be a church planter like I or, you know, an apostle. He's not doing that. But everywhere you see Paul writing, what he is doing, he is reflecting attitudes. He is reflecting why he does what he does as he looks at circumstances and sees circumstances. He says in the book of Philippians where he, he, he's saying, my own expectation is that in nothing I will be put to shame, but that in everything... Christ will be magnified in my life whether I live or whether I die. And, I, and, and, and all through this, the circumstance that he goes through in relationship to good things and, and bad things, his motivation was the preeminence of Christ. Now, that's not the way he always was. And what he does in Philippians 3 here, he tells us where he found his meaning and his purpose before. Usually when we push Christ and we want a piece of Christ, but we don't want all of Christ, is because I think that there is something out there that will give me more meaning and more purpose and a sense of accomplishment and importance than Jesus can really offer me. And that's what I fight in my culture and the message. And so he's talking about what he was like you know, uh, before he became a Christian. He's talking about how he found his identity. He was passionate for these things he lists here. He, he makes a statement. He talks about, does anyone have reason to have confidence in the flesh? I more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, Persecuting the church is for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He, 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 he was driven by his peer group for their approval. He wanted to be the best of the best in the context of his religion. He was smart as a whip. He was diligent. He was passionate. He wanted to be the chief persecutor of this sect of the Nazarene. He wanted to outperform all of his buddies that were around, that they would know he is, you got a job to do to cut these Christians off. Let me have it. I'm your man. And he was obsessed with this. Now, this doesn't mean a lot to us. And what I did, I kind of put this today in our today's vernacular here. It makes a statement where we would say today how we would write this. We'd say, you know, uh, I'm right family. 
was born in the Kennedy family or the Rockefeller family or some of those famous names that we know. Man, I'm, I got the right pedigree of the family. Don't you know who I am? Went to the right university. I got the greatest MBA program. I married the trophy wife. I became the youngest partner of Goldman Sachs. I'm very religious. I'm a deacon in my church. I, you know, I'm involved socially. I'm a chairman of the March of Dimes. And by the way, I knock it out of the park business-wise. I was a millionaire by the age of 30. And, and, and so we've got these messages that, 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 come of us like, that, that come of us, that come at us like this. The reason I put a couple of those statements in, I was the youngest partner of, uh, partner of Goldman Sachs. I, you know, this financial meltdown has caused an awful lot of people to re-examine their heart. And there's a lot of people taking inventory of their heart. And you and I, as church guys, as Jesus guys, have constantly got to be taking inventory of our heart. I had a guy from Goldman Sachs, he comes in, and he says, we need to get together, da, da. we get together, and he comes in, and he sits down, and he just got laid off at Goldman Sachs, and he said, well, John, I want you to know, I, I've been on my knees three times this last week. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I bet you hadn't been on your knees one time in 30 years. And he looked at me, yeah, well, yeah, you're right, you know. I said, let's go back to the basics. We go back to the basics and go through the gospel, clarify the gospel, like Walter was talking about this morning. And, and uh, I said, what do you think? He said, you know, I've been waiting all my life for somebody to tell me how to make that decision. My whole life was Goldman Sachs. And I know that's the answer to life. The guy comes in, a millionaire by the age of 30. Have lunch with him. I never met him before. He says, you need to know something about me. I said, okay, you know, big hedge fund guy, you know, and such and such. He said, you need to know I live my life for money. Uh, money is everything to me. All my relationships are based upon money. My friends are based upon money. I don't, I'm not involved with anybody that uh, doesn't have a money hook in it some way. My wife has told me that God is my money. And he says, money was my life. And he says, I've lost it all. And I'm ready to listen. And two hours later, he gave his life to Christ. But that was his identity that, 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 that was what drove him. That's what gave him meaning and worth and value. Now, now here's the tension, my brothers. <laughs> Scripture tells us that the unbeliever, he exchanges the truth for a lie and serves the creation more than the creator. Now, the unbeliever doesn't have any options but to believe the lie and to find his identity in the creation. That's, that's how he's supposed to live. He's a member of, of, of the world. That's, that's what it's about. But what happens, instead of the salt and light going into the darkness, sometimes the cultures of the Jesus of culture invades the Jesus of Scripture. And we as Christians begin to believe in the lie. 
and we exchange the truth of the supremacy of Christ plus nothing equal everything is I've got to put the something in there. It's Jesus plus something which will equal everything. And so what Paul is saying here, he's making it very, very clear that that where I found my identity that gave me meaning and purpose, (laughs) once I lost it, I was left with nothing but a sense of emptiness. Now let me read, if I can, to you a couple of testimonies of unbelievers. Uh, One of them was a believer. and let you see how when they begin to look at their own lives and how they're serving the creation and how they're working their plan and culture's plans and they get at the end of those things and they're left with a sense of despair of who I am. These are names that you'll recognize. Chris Everett, you know, the 70s and 80s won more tennis matches than uh, just about anybody around. I think she still has a record of uh, the women uh, uh, championships. After her retirement, she said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed to have the wins, the applause, in order to have a sense of meaning and identity. Boy, she nailed it, didn't she? Then other guys, the CEO, <clears throat> very successful. And this guy might have been a believer, but he got in trouble, prescription drugs. But he defined his life as like this. He said, my life was built on two premises. The first one was, that I, control, uh, that I could control your opinion and approval of me through my performance. The second premise was, that was all that mattered in life. I want you to think about that. Of how we Christians buy into that. I'm born again. My sins are forgiven. Heaven is assured, but we know that, as I was telling Walter, I'm, I'm having these guys that are, that, that are successful guys in, in their early 40s that are, uh, that are that they're good men, they're moral, they love their families, they're deacons in the churches, and, but man, are they, and they're coming, they're saying, Mason, there's got to be more to the Christian life than what we're experiencing. I said, hey guys, there is, but all the chips have got to be in. You got to cut a deal, or you'll gut God's purpose for your life. You got to cut a deal that God has permission to do whatever He wants to with your heart. And then God goes to work. Another one comes along, and I was thinking about this. This was in Chariots of Fire. I love that song too. Uh, and I think 
this comes, I'm not sure, I think the, you remember the Jewish guy? Uh, maybe Kent, you guys might, the Jewish guy, which was a sprinter. Wasn't his name Abraham? Yeah, okay. He made this statement. He was having some conversation about meaning in life. He said, when asked uh, why I run, uh, he says, I don't do it because I love it. He said, I'm addicted. He went on to say, I'm 24 years old, and I've never known contentment. I am... Uh, uh, I am forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I raise my eyes, and I look down the corridor of a four-foot track with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I got to win. I got meaning. I'm somebody. In those ten seconds, he gave his life to that. And then the last one quickly. My drive, this is from Madonna, very honest with herself. She said, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I am somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. I still have to prove I'm somebody, so my struggle never ends, and it probably never will. Now, think of how many Christians can relate to that. Oh, God loves me? Now, I must prove to God why I am lovable for him to love me, and all of a sudden, I'm on the track of the performance built around doing what's necessary to make sure you esteem me, to give me my meaning and my purpose. Now, I want to I read two other quotes to you. These quotes, one of them is from Billy Graham. Billy Graham was asked one time, uh, I, forgot, uh, I forgot the guy who wrote the article. But anyway, he was in an event with Billy Graham, and he's sitting next to him, and he, and he says, talking to him, he says, hey, Billy, what was the most exciting, thrilling uh, experience that you can remember in all your life uh, that really meant something to you? And, you know, he's saying, well, you know, I was in the Oval Office umpteen times with umpteen presidents, and, well, I, you know, I spoke to 100,000 in, in Brazil and such and such. Uh, thinking that, you know, he would find some type of button there to push. Listen to what he says. He says, by far the greatest joy of my life has been my fellowship with Jesus. Having him speak to me, having him guide me, his presence with me and his power through me, this has been the highest pleasure of my life. Bingo. He found the chief treasure. And so God could begin to entrust him. Mother Teresa was asked one time, why you do what you do? She said, tell them, when you go back, everything we do, we do for Jesus. We feed the poor for Jesus.
We care for the sick for Jesus. We help the downtrodden. It's all about Jesus. Now, Paul goes on in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. And he makes the statement about all those things that he had at one time. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for Christ's sake. Now, let me say something I think that is very important. And this is a very important point. Uh, Social achievement, financial success, uh, athletic achievement, uh, being gifted and being used. Those are all neutral. They are neutral. But it is when I am driven within myself that I must have that as a Christian, no matter what, to ultimately give me my meaning and my purpose apart from Jesus Christ. That's where I get messed up. That's where my lukewarmness comes in because I cannot live the way God wants me to live with a divided heart. And many times when Jesus is made preeminent and I and some of the illustrations that we've had and as Dana was telling me about even in in the social setting of Hollywood and so forth, making going public with Jesus in my identity I can't do that deal because of my identity with Jesus Christ. I can't go there, and it may cost me my job, but I want you to know I'm lining up with Jesus on this thing. And it's having people in all walks of life that begin to surface as that, you know what? I don't care what the cost because the supreme prophet and everything I ultimately long for is found in me chasing after the true lover of my soul, Jesus Christ. And I want you to know I made a decision to let God have my heart and all my chips are in. And I don't know whether that's going to be a life on top of the bell curve or whether it's going to be on the bottom of the bell curve. But I want you to know I'm all in with Jesus. And God says, now watch me leverage you for my Father's glory. Wow. And Paul says, Look, guys, (laughs) once you understand the value that everything that I ultimately long for, God wishes to give it to me, but it is built around the supremacy of the intimacy of Jesus Christ. And he says, everything else is rubbish. I may have this. I may have the nice house, I may have the such and such. God may make me uh, CEO of a Fortune 500. God may uh, allow me to be voted the most outstanding athlete of the year. God may allow such and such and put me in places and, like he does everybody here. But you know what? <laughs> it's been about me following Jesus and identifying with Jesus. And you know, if I lose that, doesn't mean it. It's rubbish <laughs> because my value is in Christ. That God begins to leverage us and to use us the way he wishes to. Now, let me ask you this. 
I want to ask you some questions here. We're taking inventory. Taking inventory of our hearts. Uh, now, let me ask you some of these. You know, when, when something gets away, in the way, we call it a lot of different things. We call it, well, I'm trying to find my meaning apart from Christ, or I'm trying to find my importance or my value or worth in what I've accomplished and such and such. But, you, you know, the Bible is very, very clear. Ezekiel makes a statement, you've set up idols in your heart. you got an idol, Maisel. And let me tell you, all these games we're talking about here, you can play them in ministry just as much as you can play them in the corporate structure. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And sometimes I have to tell the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't even know my heart here. I don't know whether this is about me or it's about you, but I do know this, I want it to be about you. I'm smart enough to figure that out. But you got the same games of finding the sense of meaning and purpose in ministry rather than in the supremacy of Christ's rulership, just like you do in all the other corporate structures. Let me ask you this. What is it in your life that is your secret idol? Anytime you and I take something that is temporal and try to make it the ultimate to give me my meaning and my value and my worth, very easily shifts over under the umbrella of idolatry. Is there anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? In other words, what do, you, what do you think about when you have some time to dream? When you're just kind of kicking back and just kind of dreaming, what occupies your imagination? Boy, you know, we had, oh, man, if I had that house or, oh, boy, you know, if we had, uh, man, if we just get this position or, uh, or you know, oh, Lord, don't let your grip get loosen on me. What do you think about when you're by yourself? What do you, what do you dream about? It's a good way to tell. Another one, is anything you seek for, for a sense of value or worth that can only be given by God? You know, I think this is a little bit about what Jesus said. Hey, Mason, you want to find your life? Let me tell you my way. You got to have a commitment to lose it if I asked you to. And you can play all the games of your plan and culture's plan, but if you find your life, you'll lose it. And is there something that you value more at this point than you really value God's plan and the supremacy of Christ in whatever phase he wants to use in your life or take you through? To me, that's a good question. Next question I had, whatever you fear that if you lost it, your life would be destroyed. You know, fear is, is the greatest enemy in the Christian life. Four or five years ago, I spoke on fear up here. 
You know, we've got all these fears, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not having enough money, fear of death, fear of abandonment, fear, fear. Satan is always there when Jesus is coming in and he asks something. And the question I, what do I fear more that if I lost it, it would devastate me? Apart the supremacy of Christ in my life. Next one I had. What is it that you dream about that says to you, if I only had that, I would have value and should be feel. And feel significant and secure apart from God. What is it that when you peel it back is really who you are? Most people, you know, they did an interview on the street last week, and they said, well, of course, well, who are you? And well, well, you know, I'm a salesman. Who are you? Well, I'm a secretary. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a housewife. Well, who are you? People identify them by what we do. Who are we? We're new creatures in Jesus Christ. And what, what, what do I cling to? more than I cling to my identity in Christ that I, that I feel secure in. You know, I love that passage I was reading. I was thinking about it today when I was thinking about this message. That uh, It's in Acts 26. I mean, this is, it, it, it's, uh, uh, Paul's under arrest. He's got a governor and uh, by the name of Festus. Is it Felix or Festus? It's Festus. It's Festus, and then King Agrippa comes down to visit Paul, and then it says, well, they want to hear Paul's story, why he's in, in prison, and he's been in prison a couple of years, and, and, and so here you are, you got the governor, you got the king, and then it says, and the leading people of the city entered with great pomp. I mean, it's the who's who are gathering, and... and, and <laughs> I mean, they're dressed to the hilt and such and such, and they bring in this dingy little guy that probably hadn't had a bath in several weeks. His hair was probably all messed up. He says, okay, Paul, tell us your story. Paul gives us his testimony, and all of a sudden, Festus stands up and says, Paul, you're crazy! You're crazy! And Paul, he kind of probably shook it off. I want you to picture this. You know, it's at the White House. And all the guests that are invited. And here's this guy. And they say he's crazy after he's told them about his encounter with Christ. And he stands up. And he looks at all of these people who are the best of the best. And he says, I would to God that all men were such as I yet without these chains. Who is his identity? Everything was bound up in the person of Christ. I'm on top of the bell curve. That's where God's placed me. Bottom of the bell curve didn't make any difference what my circumstances were. And all these people that had given their life to all of these things that they had been trying to find the meaning and the worth and the value. Paul says, let me tell you where it is. It's in the person of Christ. Let me go quickly here. Uh, he goes down here, Philippians 3. 
10, 11, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. So somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the reason Paul could say everything else is rubbish, he said, this is, this is what his focus is. I want to know Christ. Guys, if you want to, if you, if you and I want to be what God wants us to be, uh, we have to be intentional. You cannot come to know Christ in this way by hearing a 25-minute message on Sunday once a week. If you're going to compete in the Olympics, you've got to show up at the gym. There's not a person out there who's won a gold medal. One of the guys, the skater, you know, the, the skater with the little deal in there, they said he had three two-hour workouts a day. He showed up at the gym. You and I have to be intentional with our time with Christ. You, 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 you can't just go hear a message or listen to a tape. You got to drill deep yourself. God wants to speak to you, a unique message to each one of us. It is so easy for you and I to lose our sense of awe and wonder of Christ. There's so many pressures on you guys. There's so many pressures that, that pull us, and, and we lose our sense of awe and our sense of wonder of who Jesus is. And all of a sudden, I'm just, I got to survive. I got to survive. No, 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 no. I got to be focused, and I got to be intimate with Jesus because he's the one that charts the course for my life. And Paul says, I want to know him. And I have to be intentional about that. And he says, the power of his resurrection. I think the power of his resurrection, I think what he means there, he says, the greatest fear in the Christian life, or the greatest enemy of the Christian life, is this issue of fear. The greatest fear most people have is the fear of death. The resurrection of Christ overcomes and conquers death. Paul says, I want to live with that sort of power that took the greatest fear and it conquered it. That's resurrected power, no matter what God might ask me to do. I want to have that experience in my life. And then he comes down here and he says, you know what? I want to share in the fellowship of his suffering. Whoa. Uh, fellowship of his suffering. Paul makes statements, I rejoice in my suffering. And you know what I think he's saying there? The fellowship of his suffering. I think he's looking at Jesus. And I think he's looking at Jesus in the garden. And, God, and Jesus is really struggling. And he's saying, you know, Father, is there plan B? Is there another plan rather me, rather than I having to go to that cross? Uh, can I have another cup? to pull off this plan of redemption. I, I think about the cross, and I think of the pain and the horror and the suffering. And, and, and Father, uh, Father, you know what? <laughs> I want to drink any cup you might give me. And if I have to suffer, I want the cup you want me to have because that's the way you'll be honored and you'll be glorified in and through me. And I think that's what Paul's saying. I want to have those attitudes 
And I want to have that intimacy with Christ that Christ had with the Father when I might be asked to do something that involves a great cost or pain or sorrow. He says, I want to know that. Well, let me see how I finish quickly. Power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering. Let me close with this. It's how I finished. I hope you're all familiar with this. He says, I'm, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Time of my departures have come. He said, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, let me tell you what I think he's saying there. I think it is a fight to live the way you and I are talking. It's just told him, he had said earlier in Timothy, he said, fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight to follow an unseen God and to believe this book, that when this book speaks, God speaks. And make choices and decisions based upon this upside-down kingdom that you and I are to be a part. When I've got video 24-7 telling me everything that's contrary to that, that is a fight. And I have found people who live by sight They have to have tangible things in the culture to give them a sense of meaning. They have to have people tell them they're okay, where you and I are called to live by faith. God says, you give me your heart, you make my son supreme, and then you let me lead you and guide you as a shepherd does his living sheep. And I guarantee you, if you fight with your heart that way, that today, not tomorrow, but today, you want to do everything that you can with everything that's pulling on you in your brokenness to say, Father, you have my permission to do whatever is necessary to complete your work and accomplish your glory in my heart today. I guarantee you, men, at the end of your life, There will be nothing that you will think, that you will feel, or that you will wish that you had done differently other than giving God your heart. But I also guarantee you, if you don't give God your heart, you get at the end of your life, you will think, you will feel, and you would have wished you had have given him permission to take your heart. So he says it's a fight. Then he says, I finished the course. I think that's God's, God lays out the course. We don't lay out our course. There are people in here who have gone through incredible pain and hurt and sorrow. There are experiences that just in this room that most of us, you know, oh man, thanks for the way you demonstrate and bring honor to God, the way you responded to it. God sets the course. You read what Paul went through here. And when he makes this statement, I have kept the faith, and you read the litany of the circumstances that he went through on the basis of honoring Jesus Christ. He kept the faith. He didn't quit. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to quit. How many times I've shouted, I've had it, God. I can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. God, just, come on, John. You know I love you. Won't you? And just woos me back. He kept the faith. 
Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tonight. And you see what Paul says about his circumstances, and he kept the faith because Christ was supreme. And he knew that if he kept the faith, that God's exaggeration of his wonder and his blessings would be Paul's. And then Paul makes a statement in the, not only for me, hey guys, it's available to all of us. So my brothers, as uh, you and I leave here, uh, it's a real battle down there. Desperately need one another. Uh, I hope some of these thoughts will cause you to inventory your heart. Ask yourself some hard questions. You know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting ready to go this year. I'll probably step down as CEO of, of our organization. And uh, uh, I was examining my heart today. And I think, you know, I'm where I fought to be like this that I'm noticing some things in my heart that I've been holding like this. And God's coming and he's knocking. From Since high school, I've been in a leadership position constantly. And, and, and it's, you know, it, it's, and now I'm, I don't know, I'm going to be getting to Gene. He's going to tell me, help, tell me what to do here. <laughs> uh, but I've noticed some twings in my heart I wasn't even aware of. I said, thank you, Father. Cut them out. Whatever's necessary that grieves you, cut it out and replace it with whatever you wish to do. So I pray that, that you'll get alone and you won't leave the mountain unless you've taken inventory, just you and the Lord and your Bible and let him speak to you and let him say whatever he wishes to say to you. And then you and I can go back to the places that God has called us and my Jesus, my Jesus, oh my Jesus. And we'll begin to have the impact that God desires us to have. Father, thank you for my brothers. Thank you for their sweet spirit and uh, the way you just knit our hearts together around your son. We're in desperate need of uh, your surgery, of you opening our eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of the beloved son. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing us together in our brokenness. And we pray that continually that you would uh, meet us where we are and calls us to take whatever steps that are necessary to unfold the wonder and the majesty and the sense of awe and the beauty of the Lord Jesus himself. And we love you, Lord Jesus, and uh, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father.